Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm. Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries for nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to Sox Machine Live. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Thursday night, September 5th, 2019, as we are streaming live on Mixler.com slash Sox Machine as we are directly competing right now with the Chicago Bears and Green Bay Packers. Uh, bold move on our part, but there's a lot of positive to talk about when it comes to the White Sox. They just completed their four-game series in Cleveland. Really good performances over the series that we will go in-depth, including a magnificent start by Ronaldo Lopez, pitching a complete game one hitter. Eloy Jimenez is locked in at the plate. And Tim Anderson is battling for the American League batting title. But during this series, man, the weaknesses going into next season are very, very obvious. And we'll touch on those during the show, too. At the end, we'll preview the home series against Los Angeles Angels as Mike Trout and company roll into town. Joining me now on the podcast is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Good series split for the White Sox. But man, I can't help but wonder if they win this series, if they had a certain outfielder in center field. And I can't, can't help but wonder if having that outfielder in center field means moving an actual outfielder to right field, we could have seen a no-hitter from Lopez on Thursday. Yeah, maybe Adam Angle. Well, Angle was in there, right? So there you go. I thought you were talking about the game before where Larry Garcia yeah, over <laughs> got turned around by every single line drive that came at him. And that's where I thought you were going with that. But yeah, 
Uh, it does seem like they're an outfielder short between Goins and Wright and Daniel Palka and Wright and one for 53. Uh, there is a need for uh, somebody to fill that last spot. And obviously we're speaking around it, but there's a lot of people that come to us, try to make sense of things with the White Sox, or we have open conversations as everyone, readers, listeners, we try to figure this out as we go along. But, you know, we haven't, we didn't have a podcast to recap the Rick Hans decision about not calling up Luis Robert. And just briefly touching on this, here are my thoughts. Rick Hahn is George Casanza. It's not a lie, Jim, if you believe it. And a part of me thinks that Rick Hahn is straight up lying that about service time manipulation, that this isn't about service time when everybody knows that it is. But there's also a part of me now that does think that Rick Hahn actually believes that Luis Robert is fatigued and that his 122 games played this season is enough for him. So, again, one side of me thinks Rick Hahn is more lawyer than general manager, and the other side of me thinks that Rick Hahn doesn't know much about player development. What are your thoughts after this series and a couple days to linger about Luis Robert not being called up? Well, it's a lie because he said it had nothing to do with it. None was the word he used, I believe. Ah, so it was, a, it was okay. a categorical denial, which is, you know, not true. I mean, every fan is thinking about it. Like most, or I would say most fans... Uh, you know, who don't have Han's job and don't have his devotion to all the minutiae of White Sox uh, player control and, and, and budgets and contract sheets and everything like that is aware of Robert's service time and, and, and the, the implications of calling him up now versus calling him up in April or June or what have you. So, you know, that was where the lie was. And that's why I can call it a lie versus something like, you know, making, uh, you know, us having different priorities than him, but yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm past the whole, you know, seven is greater than six. We've talked about that, you know, ad nauseum about how this should be the seventh year, this year of development. And, and, you know, as you get closer to September and into September, it makes less and less sense because you're not really making use of that seventh year. So by this point, you know, I, I get why it sounds old, why, you know, when, when I'm complaining about it to some people, but, you know, really it's just comes down to he should have been up two months ago and they wasted this opportunity. And it's also just, you know, bad faith business, which if you've ever been on the receiving end of bad faith negotiations and business practices, and yeah, I'm in a union and my union's been subject to that. It's not fun, you know, and I really don't wish that on anybody. So that's kind of where I'm coming from too. Yeah, it's not good for the game. I mean, and in this week, you got Luis Robert winning minor league player of the year from USA Today, mm-hmm. uh, MLB Pipeline. We had Jim Callis on the show on Monday, Sox Machine Podcast, uh, named Robert the best position player of the year uh, down to the minors. And uh, Robert right now is probably just chilling somewhere. I'm sure chugging two liters of orange soda and eating his daily large Domino's pizza uh, instead of learning how to be a big leaguer. But, you know, it's okay. It's fun watching Lurie Garcia take terrible routes in center field and try to pretend that Ryan Goings uh, could play in right field. Yeah. So, okay. No more snark from me. I said my piece about the situation. Watch Luis Robert signs a contract extension before the end of spring training. And <laughs> which even brings up the, it, it brings it back to full circle. Like when Aloy Jimenez signed his contract extension, if you knew that was a possibility and you had confidence that they were going to sign it, why not call him up in September to give him a head start? But alas, like I said, 
That's enough for me on the topic because there are some really positive performances, Jim. This four-game series to be pumped about if you're a White Sox fan. And I hope this is a sign of more things to come. So let's start with last year's uh, topic of service time manipulation, and that's Aloy Jimenez. Aloy, this series, was terrific at the plate, Jim. Mm -hmm. He was 8 for 17. He hit three doubles. He hit two home runs. He put 13 balls in play. Nine, nine of the 13 had an exit velocity of 100-plus miles per hour. I mean, Oscar Mercado made one hell of a catch that saved the Wednesday game for the Cleveland Indians uh, that robbed Jimenez from tying the game, if not giving the White Sox the lead. And maybe we're still talking about a series lead if Mercado doesn't make that catch in center field. But I feel, Jim, this is the Aloy Jimenez we fell in love with last year. And this approach from this series, I believe, is a taste of what is to come. He's an elite hitter. His learning curve may not be as fast as like Peter Alonso's with the Mets, but I think we are in store for a wild month of September with Jimenez at the plate, which is very exciting. Do you agree that this series in Cleveland can be a springboard for Aloy? I think so. I'm going to be, of, of course, cautiously optimistic as always. But the key to me was looking at his uh, plate approach and his swinging and such is that, you know, sometimes he swung and miss through pitches and he got a little bit uh, anxious, especially that last at bat uh, off Whitgren that he lined out to Mercado when he was really trying to be the hero. And his first two uh, swings were at high fastball, swung underneath him, luckily had no chance, got into an 0-2 hole. But then he, he laid off. He might have gotten lucky with one borderline call that... Uh, went his way uh, on a slider that was pretty much nailed the corner, maybe a bit below. And uh, he, he lucked out with the call, but um, you know, he, he kind of ratcheted down, uh, got control of the zone again. And then he pounced on a mistake. And like you said, Mercado made a miracle catch to, uh, to snag it, but you know, it was everything you wanted to see there. And I was looking at his batted ball stats and he hit 11 balls in the air this series, which is key. Like he was running about a 50% ground ball rate entering the series and that's just a lot of you rolling over pitches. Um, even like when he tried to go the opposite way, he's hitting bouncers to second, which is really unusual for a, a right-handed hitter, a guy with his kind of swing. So uh, it, it reminded me a bit of Paul Konerko when he struggled. He'd just top over everything, hit grounders to the left side, and just it was really just a waste of his power and talent. But now he's elevating the ball like against Clevenger. Got a couple of rolling sliders, but he punished those rolling sliders. He hit them the way they deserved to be hit. And that was the kind of stuff he wasn't doing earlier before the series. So this is the positive sign I'm taking away. It's not just he had good um, good results and, and you know great exit velocity and uh, came up with some big hits, but they were in the right direction at the right trajectory. And hopefully we'll see a lot more of that. Yeah, James Vegan of The Athletic for his postgame comments, speaking with Mike Clevenger after that game. Clevenger admitted that Aloy Jimenez is learning, like kind of speaking to him as like a machine, like machine learning, like he's starting to pick up on my sliders and he's starting to look for them. Whereas, you know, Aloy was just whiffing at the sliders and we were amazed on how many breaking pitches he was seeing at the beginning of the year. We're starting to watch him learn when to expect the slider, where the location of the sliders are going to be. And as you just pointed out, Jim, especially against a, an elite pitcher like Mike Clevenger, and Mike Clevenger in the second half of this season has been one of the best pitchers in the American League with a sub-2 ERA, when he's saying that you cannot make a mistake anymore against Jimenez with the breaking pitch, 
I just that, that's got to get you excited because I think Jimenez is going to hit another gear and we're going to start seeing the hitter that we were expecting at the beginning of the season. Yeah, it's kind of like the Raptors in Jurassic Park. That's where I was kind of thinking about that when when it came to learning just uh, oh, a clever girl, that, that kind right. of uh, just uh, dread for the opponents. And I guess if you're rooting for the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, uh, then you get really excited about it. But yeah, it, it's uh, basically what you want to see and what we kind of thought might have happened or what you wanted to see happen as a White Sox fan, just the immediate preternatural feel for hitting and quick recognition and, and just logging these, um, you know, you know, logging these events in his head and, and learning how it happened, just happened a bit slower than usual. But I think, you know, looking like he did against that quality right-handed pitching, I think bodes well for when he faces lesser pitching, left-handed pitching. I think it's, it's lining up well for him. 30 home runs is definitely within reach. Yeah. Which I think you can chalk that up as a, as, a, as a success. His weighted runs created plus is now above 100. So he's an above average hitter compared to the rest of the league. These are the things that you want to see as far as progress and where he'll end up this season. Obviously, his war total is going to be much lower than we were expecting. And we know why, because he needs to improve on defense. But. Aloy Jimenez is ramping up late in 2019. That is a good sign. Another good sign. Ronaldo Lopez bounced back in his start and his last three outings, Jim. And, and I chuckle saying this because uh, it's been really good or it's been really bad. It started with five no-hit innings against the Texas Rangers, but he had to leave the game because of dehydration. His next start, he gets bombarded in Atlanta and is knocked down in the first inning. And then he bounces back from that start to pitch a complete game, first of his career. A one-hitter on top of that, striking out 11 batters on 109 pitches. I was not expecting that from Ronaldo Lopez today. But I have to ask Jim, what's in store for the next Ronaldo Lopez start? I do I can't say, and, I, and I'm not being here. I'm not being, uh, you know, like riding a fence or anything like that. I think I'm more just. I, I wasn't able to watch all that much of it at work today. I, I kind of dropped in and out and, and saw some, you know, pretty good sliders. Some, you know, he's riding the high fastball really well, but uh, don't cr- quite know how he did the whole thing today. And I have to uh, to speed watch that and get through that. But uh, did how, how much did you watch? I watched pretty much the entire game. Okay. So the fast the, the fastball was terrific and he is mixing more of the slider the slider has now became the secondary pitch and when i went to baseball savant to look at his pitch mix he starting as far as august 1st to this start is throwing 66 percent fastballs now in may june and july he was at about 55 percent so lopez is now throwing 11 percent more fastballs and i was wondering why and I looked at his fastball velocity, his average fastball velocity from the beginning of the season to where he is today. In April, he was averaging 94 miles per hour in his fastball. Right now, he's at 96.7 miles per hour. So almost a three mile per hour increase in velocity over the season. And we're seeing velocity increases with his slider. He was at 81 miles per hour in April. He's now at 84 miles per hour. It's changeup was at about 83 miles per hour in April. It's now at 85 in August and in September. 
and where we saw him throw more changeups than sliders in April and May. That has been reversed. He's mostly a fastball and slider guy now, uh, as far as his pitch mix. And I think he's just doing a much better job of tunneling his pitches in which the slider is coming out of the same uh, arm angle and as far as the same release point or similar release point as to his fastball. And because he's picked up that extra velocity on the fastball over the season, Jim, I mean, as a hitter, you may be looking for that 97 mile per hour fastball, but if he throws the slider in the zone, that is where he's able to get ground ball outs or he's able to pick up these strikeouts because it's been more difficult for hitters to pick up on that. And there seems to be some deception where they're not getting clean looks at his slider. Yeah, uh, I can see that. I think the just the thing with Lopez when he is really feeling it versus when he's just trying to get through five or six is that fastball. And it seems like it's a... Um, you know, he doesn't really have an, an alternate mode of attacking the way like Lucas Giolito has like two or three ways of going at a lineup based on right. handedness of hitters or just which pitch he's feeling more. Lopez is basically like fastball or bust. And, you know, my skepticism with him is just, you know, can he perform well when his fastball isn't doing the work? And, and you know, the answer is kind of no, but as we've seen in the second half, he's just getting more out of it more regularly. So, yeah, you can live with that if Lopez is like your third or fourth starter, especially fourth starter. Mm-hmm. I would say third might be a push, but fourth would be, yeah, I mean, that's, that's fine. As we've seen with the White Sox rotation the last few years, you know, you can't get greedy. Uh, but yeah, I, I saw one of the few innings I saw like full, uh, he ended the first inning, I believe with like a slider that was kind of a spinner or right over the plate, middle, middle to Franmil Reyes. And that was one of the few pitches Reyes didn't punish all series and popped it up and ended the inning. And I wondered, you know, if, that pitch went the other way for him and it turned into a two nothing deficit. Would the start have gone differently? You know, I don't quite know, but it didn't, you know, and, and uh, you know, he deserves to get away with mistakes after how he got away with nothing against the start with Atlanta. So at least, you know, he got a little bit of justice there, but after that, it seemed like he, you know, from what I saw and what I was able to see and uh, from how I've caught up with it and looking at his pitch maps and such, he just uh, pushed him around with his fastball. And I think he has the capability of doing that. Um, I think the inconsistency will come when he doesn't have that really crisp fastball command and, and, and velocity. But as long as he has it, I think he'll be suitable for starting. Yeah, his next start for Ronaldo Lopez is going to be during the midweek series against the Kansas City Royals. So hopefully he can continue this good trend and avoid another bad start. Uh, break up this pattern. Just have the one bad start in Atlanta and continue to have the success that he's having in the second half of the year. I mean, he's he's at a 3.53 fit in the second half, where he was above six in the first half. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so quite the transformation between the halves for Ronaldo Lopez. And I'm with you, Jim. I think ultimately, if everything clicks, Ronaldo Lopez is going to be the White Sox fourth starter because I do expect Michael Kopech, based on his talent, uh, to be close to Lucas Giolito as far as in production. But if everything does click and everything works out. I mean, we're talking about Giolito, Kopech, Cease, and Lopez. I'm confident that all four of those pitchers can be three-plus war starting pitchers because right now on fan graphs, Ronaldo Lopez, despite the season that he's had, is at 2.3 war on fan graphs. So I, I think that if he can pitch much better in 2020, he's still a three-plus war pitcher even though he could be the fourth best starting pitcher for the White Sox. 
Hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, I know that the uh, the metrics and valuations have been all over the place. I know that he broke uh, baseball prspectus's deserved run average. Yes, he has. I think it was uh, over eight. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is now, but I've uh, I knew that that uh, basically threw out his stats. So yeah, it's he's gonna be a hard guy to project. I think, and I, I think uh, when it comes to the kind of innings he's provided, I think he'll finish with like 180. There is some intrinsic value with a guy who's able to provide that kind of workload, even if it's been you know, drastically inconsistent and a lot of times looks like he's on the verge of replacement. Uh, those guys can always provide something. It's just a matter of you know, how much more than something he can provide. And yeah, uh, I think this half is, yeah, I don't want to fall in the same trap where he just, you know, fell in the same, uh, you know, kind of the, the same thought process as we had last second half with Lopez to where, mm-hmm. He's, everything's you know everything's great he looks like he's a fixture he might be somebody who runs hot and cold naturally and uh, as long as the white Sox are able to add to their rotation and uh ensure themselves against it it's a lot easier to accept than when lopez was really the one guy with Kopech out and giolito having the league's worst era last year i think with giolito being uh fully functional and cease you know if he can bring this uh, curveball that he had uh you know as we're talking about pitchers who are uh improving you know, the way Cease threw his curveball and the way he used that to pitch backwards and set up hitters and, and get him off his fastball, if he can bring that into his next start, then all of a sudden your, your, your inconsistency start to start with Lopez is a lot easier to absorb. Well, you already touched on Dylan Cease. That was going to be our next topic. But I thought the adjustment that Cease made, and that was always, that was a tough matchup. I mean, you're going up against the mound against Mike Clevenger. He's not allowing a lot of runs in any of his starts in the second half of the season. He's been one of the hottest pitchers in the league and to be able to strike out 11 batters and just look terrific and bouncing back from uh, his poor starts. uh, I just, I have a lot of confidence that he's starting to figure it out, Jim, and maybe we'll start seeing a little bit more consistency from the rookie for the remaining three or four starts this month. Yeah. Like, I guess I think he knows how he has to, go about it against a lineup that's heavily left-handed like Cleveland's was because lefties were killing him. Uh, you know, he's struggling or not great against either side, but lefties were especially clubbing him around. So I think that he understands at least how it looks when he's successful against a lineup like that. It's just a matter of having uh, start-to-start execution with his curveball, especially. And, and we've seen it when he doesn't have his curveball and he can't really get in counts to feel comfortable about using it and has to go his fastball and gets beat up. So I don't think we're quite out of the woods yet. But if he can start tying together, you know, two starts in a row, three starts out of four, then I think uh, he's going to be somebody who can, you know, probably closer to Giolito than Lopez in terms of having multiple ways of getting guys out, especially if the slider comes around. Because I think uh, right now he's still curveball, um, you know, curveball first when it comes to secondary pitches. The changeup is really something he saves for the third time through and the slider is really not as useful of a weapon. So, yeah, it's a bit different from Giolito, who lost his curveball early and had to go to the slider. But as long as he has one of those two pitches and can throw them in fastball counts, then you know I think that's a lot of the battle for his rookie season. Then let's talk about Tim Anderson. The last item I have on the very good list, Tim Anderson now qualifies for the batting title officially. And in his last 30 games, Tim Anderson is hitting 382 with a 396 on base percentage and slugging 573. That is an insane slash line for a 30 game period for any hitter in the game of baseball. And this is by far the best we've seen Tim Anderson at the plate in his career. 
Anderson's batting average in balls in play this season is 394. Last year, it was 289. So we got a 105 point difference in BABUB. In his rookie season, though, Anderson was at 375. So we've seen an abnormally high BABUP before from Tim Anderson. I'm enjoying this wave, Jim, and it's going to be fun to see if Tim Anderson can hit better than DJ LeMayhew, which LeMayhew has been terrific all year for the New York Yankees, uh, to see if Anderson can win a batting title, which I just never thought he had that type of potential when he got called up by the White Sox in the 2016 season. But I do have some caution, and I blame 2017 Avisil Garcia for this feeling because I want to Mm -hmm. believe that Anderson can do this for the rest of his career, that we can see this extension of this high BABUP and a shortstop that's hitting above 300 and slugging around 500 for the White Sox in the 2020 season. I hope he can do that, but again, 2017, Avisil Garcia has hurt me, Jim, and I wonder, is this a fluke year from Anderson? Well, I think it's naturally fluky when you're running a, a batting average and balls in play that high, and, and maybe he's not batting title material year in, year out, the way that you know LeMahieu proved, although he had Colorado <laughs> behind him, so that kind of helps, but uh, when you look at his minor league history, though, he had a history you know, the, of... You know, he had a pretty smooth ascension, so he doesn't have like the most uh, uh, robust uh, minor league history. But as he was going up the ladder, he was a regular 300 hitter in the minors, uh, especially in short stints at Birmingham and Charlotte. Um, so he's had the history before. He had 301 in, in 2014, uh, 312 in 2015, and then in Charlotte before he got called up, he was hitting 304 of 55 games. So he's got the He's always had the hit tool and, and the minor league pitching, as we've seen with you know, like Luis Roberts, you know, although Roberts got the AAA baseball too, but as we've seen with guys who are less disciplined, Avi was another one who always crushed AAA pitching when he was there. Um, you know, that it does make guys who are super aggressive and have plate coverage, you know, it's pretty easy to hit the minors when you have that kind of uh, coverage. But uh, I think when you see that kind of bat-to-ball ability, there is something there that can carry over. Um, so that's why I'm not totally, uh, I'm not, I'm not selling it or I wouldn't be saying like, you know, he can't do it again. I think he can hit 300 again. Um, with, with Anderson though, I guess I'm, my concern is that, and I wrote about this is that I think the White Sox just have to be prepared for a world in which he hits 280. Like, I, I don't think he'll go back to the, you know, barring injury or some kind of severe thing, you know, baseball's weird. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty safe for him to hit 280 the rest of the way. Like, you know, just, you know, maybe he'll, he'll fluctuate between 270 and 310. But I think, you know, his days of striking out so much and having that suppress his average to, you know, 250, 240, below that for a stretch of the season, I think those are mostly behind him. Um, but I think, you know, there can be this, the years where he is subject to, bad luck or they do shift him better. Or he hits some more pop-ups, something gets out of whack and he's down to 280. And that's where I think you just, the White Sox have to be prepared for what kind of player that is. And if Anderson's hitting 280 with, you know, 15 to 20 home run power and 20 stolen bases and playing a good defensive shortstop, that's a great, that's Alexi Ramirez, uh, maybe better than Alexi Ramirez. And the, you know, he was great for the White Sox. So that's cool. Um, but when he's doing the other stuff, like, you know, making these senseless errors and, you know, not really uh, making plays on the edges of his range to make up for it. And uh, you're running into base running, you know, making bad uh, base stealing decisions. That's where I think the fatigue sets in with just the amount he's taking off the table. So 
as, as the White Sox project themselves going into 2020 and, and kind of their long-term futures at various positions. Uh, I think September is important for Anderson proving he can smooth out his, uh, his footwork and issues at shortstop. And if he can just, you know, be, you know, be a 20 error a year player rather than 30 plus uh, over a full season uh, and, and, you know, having the range that goes along with it, that's a, uh, you know, that's a good player hitting 280. So I'm feeling good about him. I think just the, I, I would like to see the errors come down, just the, the senseless ones, you know, not the, I think he'll always be somebody who takes chances and maybe uh, gets a little bit, uh, I guess, I wouldn't say careless, but just the way his mechanics are. He's just a very smooth player. And sometimes like when you see with pitch framers and pass balls, like the guys who are really good at receiving sometimes get a little bit, uh, you know, I guess lax with their mechanics or just uh, get surprised by something that wasn't where it's supposed to be because their body was expecting something else. But yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, I think he'll be somewhat error prone, but if you can get, you know, maybe to 20 errors a year, even a 280 hitter can, you know, that can be like a three, three war shortstop year after year. And that's good enough for his contract, especially. Okay. You helped calm some of my fears because I was hoping that he would not go back to 2018 slash line Tim Anderson. Uh, White Sox need Tim Anderson to continue to hit like he has uh, to help lengthen this lineup uh, because when he's hitting and Aloy's hitting and Mikata is now back, we didn't even talk about Mikata and you still got Jose mm-hmm. Abreu, even though Jose Abreu's base running was not good this week. Uh, still, it's a lot more enjoyable to watch the White Sox and they're a lot more competitive when their best hitters are hitting well, let's talk about the red flag areas. And this is something that you tweeted about the good news and bad news. The good news is the White Sox best hitters are producing the bad news. They are surrounded by players that should probably not be in the major leagues. We talked about center field, Lurie Garcia taking bad routes. He did not have a good week defensively. However, looking at right field with Daniel Polka up and Polka still, he just looks lost at the plate. For White Sox, this season in the right field, for any player that's played that position, they are hitting 214 with a 273 on base percentage and slugging 273. That's right. The White Sox right fielders this year have the same slugging percentage as their on base percentage. Total three home runs from players who have played right field for the White Sox this season. The White Sox right fielders offense with OPS plus, which is similar to weighted runs, created plus is 56, 44% below league average. Jim, I think we have to add right field as a position that Rick Khan and the White Sox front office must address this offseason with an external solution for 2020 and beyond because I don't care what state you're in, rebuilding, contending, transitioning. That is terrible offensive performance from a position, especially when in this state of major leagues where you got teams now hitting 300 plus home runs in a season, you just can't have this from a corner outfield spot. Well, I think it's especially compounded when they're getting nothing from DH either. Well, that DH was next on like the list, but I think there's an internal solution yeah. for that. But I think right field, White Sox are going to have to get yeah. somebody in free agency. Yeah, I think that's just you know the, where I was getting with the bad news is that they're going to have to find guys who can hit immediately. And whether it's been you know internal products like you know like Eloy Jimenez this year, Yoan Mikado last year, Luis Robert, I, I fear for 2020 he's going to have a tough learning curve. 
Um, you know, throwing Robert in there doesn't really solve the offensive issue, I think, to our satisfaction. Um, you know, going into next year, I think it'd be unfair for people to have above average expectations for Robert just because he is a rookie and somebody with limited pro ball experience. So I'm, I'm loath to place too, uh, too many expectations on him solving a problem with the majors. So they're going to need, you know, bats to go at right field and DH, you know, places where bats are vital. And the White Sox just have a terrible track record of getting guys who hit immediately. I, I've always likened it to like whoever they get has malware. Just uh, they, they show up and they just immediately stop working and they infect other parts of the <laughs> organization and just everything goes haywire and they just have to throw the whole thing away and, and hope that uh, a, a reboot gets it done. And that's, that's I think, my, my concern. But yeah, just it's nice to see everybody coming together. and, and uh, But yeah, Polka, I think the sooner they, they limit his bats, the better. I mean, he had that bat against Clippard where he fouled off four pitches that were middle-middle. Three fastballs. One changeup, and I was watching the bat, and he fouled off the first fastball. I'm like, well, that's the only pitch he'll get. And then he fouled off another one. Like, then he fouled off another one. And I was just, you know, and then he fouled off the change. Like, maybe he can't catch up major league heat. Then he threw, you know, fouled off a changeup. Just, you know, when you watch him hit, and, and I had this feeling with other guys, like Diane Vicieto was another one where just, I don't know what kind of pitches they can punish. Like, you know, they can hit really hard. And uh, then, you know, he ends up the bat nine pitches, dribbling a bouncer to second base and out of the inning. And just there's, he can't lift the ball in the air with authority. And, and I just don't think there's anything there. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough watching him. And, and I, unfortunately, because of the way the outfield is and not calling a police Robert, there's just no, no better use of that, which is why, why Ryan Goins is out there. And yeah, it just, that's uh, really unfortunate. I think that position probably, I think, uh, sums up just how big of a problem the outfield was i mean Luis roberts cool and and, and all the is good but just you know when it comes to the other guys like basabe and adolfo who are already on the 40-man roster and gonzalez and rutherford just that whole birmingham glut that never materialized uh that that really hurt this year all right a possible internal solution because you hinted at dh the white Sox dh this year are hitting 192 on base percentage, 273, slightly better slugging percentage than the right fielders at 318, and White Sox DH have hit 11 home runs this year. Zach Collins in this series against Cleveland was 2 for 8 with 4 walks and 4 strikeouts, and I have a feeling, Jim, the White Sox want Collins to be the main DH next season while still getting time at backup catcher and backup first base. Will the remaining 21 games of this season be enough of a sample size to give you confidence that Collins can be the internal solution to address that need for the White Sox in 2020 to have someone who can be more dependable with offensive production as the DH? I don't think I'm going to be confident in Collins just because he does have a lot of swing and miss in his game. And it seems like, uh, you know, with the 20 game sample or whatever, that, you know, maybe he solves one hole, but then, you know, when the league comes back around on him, they realize, like, oh, he's he solved high fastballs, but he's compensating it by doing this. Or we can get him out by throwing this in, in, in these counts. And then just a matter of they found the, the new hole that was created by filling the old one. And so that's why I'm not feeling, I guess, great about him. I, do, I, I am, you know, encouraged by the way he's come back and... I think it's very refreshing to see somebody who works counts and works counts on purpose. Like, you know, Polka's nine pitch at bat 
Uh, you know, that's one where it should have gone nine pitches because it should have been over after three or four when he punished one of those middle-middle pitches. Collins, you know, he's working good counts. He, he's fending off the high fastballs and trying to get him out that way. And so far, he's, he's putting up a better fight than he did the last time. Uh, he's, he's watching pitches that are very close to being off the plate, but not, you know, they're good takes. They're not accidental. They're purposeful takes. So there's, you know, there there's, you can see the discipline. Uh, it's just a matter, I think, when it comes to that kind of uh, approach is that it's always... Um, it's, it's always hard to tell. Like I remember Yonder Alonso early in the season, like watching the difference between Yonder Alonso's at bats and Daniel Polka, uh, Alonso's at bats were, even though he wasn't producing just a lot easier to watch because he was taking really bad pitches and he was, you know, doing stuff with pitches that were, you know, in the middle of the zone and he was able to do the occasional damage and Polka was just able to do nothing. And I think when you just have such low standards, low standards for the position, low standards for, I guess, multiple positions, when a guy comes in showing some idea of the strike zone, I think it's a little bit easy to, uh, to yeah, I guess, use those lower standards to feel overconfident about somebody just because, you know, the competence in that area is so rare for the White Sox. But I don't want to get lulled into a false sense of security just by, you know, somebody taking some pitches. That means that uh, the league will be afraid of him and, and, and pitch him in a smaller strike zone. I think they just might find a different area of the strike zone to exploit. So I'm holding off on that, but... I like what I've seen so far. Again, a positive series outcome for the White Sox in Cleveland, splitting the four-game series. Definitely. And hopefully the White Sox can continue that success at home against the Angels this weekend. And let's preview that series next. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. With millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way in buying tickets. Search sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you are looking for all in one place. In an industry that tends to stagnate, SeatGeek decided to stand out from the crowd, and they did that by building the fastest way to find tickets so you can stop searching for the perfect seat and start enjoying it. And I use SeatGeek all the time to buy tickets, especially going to White Sox games. I'll be going to the Saturday game, and I use SeatGeek to buy those tickets. And the reason why I like using SeatGeek is that they rate each deal on a scale of 1 to 10, and they put it on an interactive seat map. So the green dots are great deals. The red dots stay away. Those tickets are overpriced. And I like that every purchase is fully guaranteed so I can shop for tickets with confidence. And with the White Sox, again, moving to digital tickets this year, it's easy to download the tickets from the SeatGeek app to my smartphone for easy access into the stadium. And the best part of using SeatGeek is that our listeners get $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. So if you're thinking about going to the games this weekend, the weather looks like it's going to be terrific. Mike Trout is going to be in town. Giolito's pitching on Friday. Cease is pitching on Sunday. Download the SeatGeek app and buy your tickets on SeatGeek for the White Sox series. And use our promo code SOXMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase. Again, that's promo code SOXMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. And yes, the Chicago White Sox are playing the the Los Angeles Angels. I keep wanting to call them the Anaheim Angels, but they're the Los Angeles Angels. The Angels are 65 and 76. They're fourth place in the American League West, and the arrow is definitely pointing down for them. They have, in their last 10 games, they are 2 and 8. And in their last game on Thursday afternoon, they had a 6-1 lead against Oakland. But they lost that lead as Josh Fagley 
started the rally for the Athletics, hitting a home run, and the A's came back to win 10-6. to That was an ugly loss for the Angels, and it doesn't help Cleveland because with the win today for Oakland, they have moved by, past the Cleveland Indians in the wildcard standings. So if the season were to end today, Cleveland would be out of the postseason. So that was a big series for the White Sox to split with the Indians as the A's swept the Angels. And now the A's are looking to be in the postseason while the Cleveland Indians are on the outside looking in. Your pitching problems for this series. Friday, Lucas Giolito against Dylan Peters. Saturday, Andrew Heaney for the Angels against Dylan Covey for the White Sox. And on Sunday, it is Dylan Cease for the White Sox against Jamie Barrera. Jim, I think the pitching matchups definitely favor the White Sox, especially Friday and Sunday, uh, as both of those pitchers for the Angels have been really struggling. Saturday, Andrew Heaney has been terrific against the White Sox in his career, and Dylan Covey is Dylan Covey. I think the White Sox will win two out of three and pick up another series win. How do you feel about this weekend series against the Angels? I think it's possible. Um a series win yeah they, they do struggle sometimes uh inexplicably against some lefties and haney's been good and peters is a little bit in the same mold so that's why i'm i guess a, a little bit reluctant to feel great about the series until i see what kind of swings they take against them but um yeah i think uh one thing i'm curious with two lefties is whether zach collins will play two out of three games even though these he's been largely shielded uh against left-handed pitching which i think is fair for him and everybody but uh, as this month goes on, I think it's worth exposing him to some of it just to you know, understand just how limited he is, uh, what he has to work on, you know, what he has to work on seeing uh, when it comes to major league lefties. So I hope he gets some starts. But uh, I remember the last series too, Mike Trout had his way with the White Sox and some people were mad about the White Sox pitching to him and, and letting him beat him. And uh, when when Trout's in the Chicago and and, and if I were in Chicago, I'd be going to those games just to watch him. But this is like the last year where Mike Trout can uh, whip you and you don't feel bad about it because the wins don't mean anything and the losses don't mean anything. So <laughs> I'm all for challenges. Like I'm all for, you know, going after him and, and, you know, having, especially like a guy like Giolito, having Giolito see what his best stuff does against uh, the best in the league. And if he loses the battle, so be it. But uh, this is the last time where, you know, Mike Trout can homer and it's cool and it doesn't really, you know, maybe they lose a game, but, that's better draft position. You know, that's fine. Um, and if he beats Trout, cool. You know, it's, uh, you file it away. And, and I love those battles. And I don't want to see the White Sox shy away from those battles when they present themselves. You know, within reason. Like, runners on second and third in a one-run game and two outs, yeah, I'll walk them. But when it comes to just him being the tying run in the eighth inning with two on and, uh, yeah, two out and nobody on, go at him. What the hell? Yeah, if you're up 6-1 to one and he's leading off the seventh inning and he hits a 420-foot home run, enjoy it. <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of how I feel. So as long as Mike Trout is the only one doing the damage, then that's acceptable in this upcoming series for the White Sox against the Angels. But again, we'll be recapping as far as that series on Monday's Sox Machine podcast. We're going to have our best friend of the show, Dan Zaborski from Fangraphs, join us as well. Uh, so for our Patreon supporters, you can go ahead to patreon.com slash machine and submit your questions as Dan will be answering some of those questions for our Patreon-only recording uh, for our Sox Machine Patreon supporters. And that will do it for this edition of Sox Machine Live. Thank you guys so much for listening to the live stream, especially for those that are listening to us while the Bears and Packers were playing. And if you didn't catch the live stream, 
no worries. You can always listen to the recording on the podcast feed, which you can subscribe to the Sox Machine podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, uh, Google Podcasts, and audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. Sox Machine Live is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.